From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison, I'm Adam Wigger. I'm Mia Wagner. And I'm Michael Mikowski. In this podcast series, we will speak with UW-Madison faculty members and other experts to hear their thoughts on the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as the political and global changes that the situation has warranted. This is 1050 Bascom, COVID-19. Today on 1050 Bascom, we are excited to welcome Doug McLeod, FU Centennial Professor in the School of Journalism and Mass Communications here at UW. A Badger alumni, Professor McLeod is here to talk with us about media coverage of the protests, developing social movements, and much more. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor McLeod. Great to be here. Uh, to start us off, can you give us a look back at your career so far, um, what you do now at the university and like what kind of research you take part in? Sure, well, let me tell you a little bit about what I do in the School of Journalism. I teach on the strategic communication side of the school. Um, as you know, the school kind of has two large undergraduate tracks. One's in online journalism and multimedia journalism and you know all, all uh, instruction on all the ways that journalism is changing. The other side of the journalism school is strategic communication, which involves uh, various forms of persuasive campaigns, including uh, advertising, public relations campaigns, political campaigns, uh, social movement campaigns, and like. So I really fit into that second category um, of, of teaching in the area of strategic communication, though most of my research actually does focus more on media, news media and news media effects, specifically looking at news media uh, coverage of social protests and how it influences audiences, policymakers, and even the protesters themselves. On everyone's radars right now are the protests continuing across the country and the world. Um, are there any trends in the coverage of these protests that you want to highlight and take a closer look at or that you find particularly interesting? Sure. Well, let me first say I've been doing this a long time. Uh, my first study of social protest was almost 40 years ago now. Uh, and so I've been looking at lots of different kinds of protests for quite a long time. And so when you ask me how have things changed, I'm looking at how have they changed over a 40 year period. And oh my gosh, uh, in that 40 year period, it seems like we went from, you know, getting an airplane off the ground to putting a rocket on the moon in terms of how much change we've seen in our media system, in our social system, in our global world system, uh, it's, it's that much change in a 40 year period. So um, that's the first thing when you ask me about change, uh, I'm looking at things in terms of a long term. Um, we could also talk about short term change and the sea change that we've seen since the initial Black Lives Matter uh, movement came into effect uh, uh, not too long ago, uh, you know, uh, uh, five years ago or so. And About 2014 what we with see Ferguson. Today, yeah, you know, if we go yeah, back to 2014 Ferguson and that spawned the kind of Black Lives Matter movement and 
uh, sort of brought this issue of police oppression to the, to the public fore. In the five, six years uh, since that time, quite a bit has changed. So, you know, we've seen changes in the nature of social, pro uh, of social protest as protesters uh, increasingly find new technologies that allow them to launch protests more quickly, organize them more quickly. We've seen changes in our media system that change the way news media covers social protests. Uh, we've seen changes um, in movements themselves. Uh, if we're talking about the Black Lives Matter movement, we've seen that movement evolve, change, and grow markedly in a very, very short period of time. Would you say that there are elements of the media as an institution today, particularly partisan media, that um, are changing the way that we are consuming our news about these protests? Yeah, that. so your question kind of goes back to one of the types of train change that I was talking about, which is change in our media system, which is a very important uh, uh, component of this larger system here. Um, again, if we back up, let's take the year sort of 2000 as kind of like the anchor. Uh, 2000 was about in the middle of my research career. I've been doing research for about 20 years. It's been 20 years since 2000. That's about the same time that we really saw a fundamental shift in the nature of our media system. Uh, and you know, in some of the writings that we've done, we've talked about the 20th century media system and the 21st century media system. The change of course took place over a period of time and it was a slow evolution. It's not like uh, uh, the world changed when we woke up um, on January 1st, 2001, but that's a fairly good benchmark for when things really started to change in terms of our media system. Uh, and it changed in so many fundamental ways. The 20th century media system was one where the number of media organizations was fairly narrow. Uh, uh, most of the people got their news and information prior to 2000 from television news. Uh, television news that was broadcast once or twice a day on three television networks and then 30 minutes of uh, uh, local broadcasting uh, in the early evening and then late at night and then from newspapers and news magazines and, and whatnot. And it was a fairly narrow set of voices that controlled those media organizations. The practice of journalism was fairly uh, uniform, uh, fairly homogenous. It was very much kind of a, a hard news approach to covering journalism. What happened today? Let me tell you about the important events in kind of descending order of what happened today. Um, and one of the things that really characterized that, that comes in, into play when you're talking about social protest, is a tendency to cover things what we call episodically. That is, the traditional form of news coverage was, let me tell you about what happened. This happened. Protesters showed up. What happened next? You know, people started making speeches and blocking traffic. What happened next? Some of the protesters got angry and started breaking things. What happened next? The police showed up. There was a conflict between the protesters and police. People were arrested. Some went to jail. Eventually, order was restored and we're back to normal. 
that's a very episodic way to cover protests. And that was the kind of protest coverage that you got for a large, uh, for most people, most audience members, their exposure to protests came through those kinds of episodic mainstream news coverage of social protest. So then, you know, during that period, as we moved from sort of 1990 to 2000, you had the emergence of the internet. And soon media organizations started to have an online presence on the internet. Then we started seeing all sorts of variegated forms, right? We had blogs emerging, we had podcastings emerging, we had uh, uh, new online only publications kind of emerging, and we had publications that cater to certain ideological predispositions. The traditional media system of the 20th century, the practice was objectivity. Media worked very hard to try to demonstrate, we're not taking a viewpoint, we're not liberal, we're not conservative, we're not democratic, we're not Republican, we're kind of just telling it like it is. And that's really easy to do when you're just talking about events, this happens and this happens. But as the media system started to expand into new forms with uh, uh, more uh, publications and more forms for those publications, you started to get media organizations that specialized in opinion, left-wing specialized media, right-wing specialized media. And Fox started to differentiate itself from other news media by being kind of the, the national TV news of the right wing. And so over time, you started to see more and more opinion entering into news media. And then the, especially online television discovered that, you know what, being a 24-hour news service, instead of just doing 30 minutes of national news a day, we now have to produce 24 hours of news. That's very expensive to send reporters out to do news stories and camera crews to do news stories to fill 24 hours of news. That's really hard. And they found that, you know what, it's much easier to invite two or three people for a 20 minute segment of discussion and opinion. And so the news on CNN and Fox and other uh, uh, television news stations shifted from being hard news and episodic to being all about opinion. And this is kind of a mixed blessing, I would sense that started to get issues coming up in the coverage of protests instead of just telling me what happened, you started seeing more uh, uh, media covering the underlying issues, not episodes, but the issues that were involved. And what is this side saying? And what is that side saying? And trying to create some kind of semblance of debate in a way, that helps uh, news consumers um, exposed to some of the underlying issues. Because the old style, sometimes you see these protesters and you wouldn't really get much information about why they were protesting. What's their issue? Why are they doing this? Those kinds of things got short shrift in the old media system. In the new media system, you start to see a lot more attention being paid uh, to issues and opinions. And in that sense, it's good. It gives us more depth understanding. On the other hand, you kind of have the dissipation of objectivity, where media are feeling like, well, we don't have to be objective anymore. Okay, that uh, uh, now we can say exactly what we think. And that's what you get with Fox News. And of course, lots of these other new media organizations 
are going in that direction. Some of them still try to provide balanced viewpoints. Some of them provide very homogeneous, uh, only one perspective uh, set of viewpoints. You have the audience responding to that by self-selecting. A lot of people self-select, well, I only want the news from left-wing sources, or I only want the news from right-wing sources. So on the one hand, we start getting more analysis, and not just what happened, we start to get some of the underlying issues in the debate, but it comes with the cost of getting um, some homogeneous news that only gives kind of one side of the story. And so what you get as an audience member is a function of what channel you decide to listen to. You know, back in, in, in the 80s and 90s, when we first doing this kind of research, we really at first didn't foresee the internet, didn't see convergence, we didn't see the kind of explosion of different kinds of news forms and news sources. Um, we had no way of foreseeing that. And, you know, we were very concerned back then that the hard news model was really missing a lot of the story. <clears throat> um, protest was framed as like uh, events, as a contest between protesters and police. And so we were really concerned that, you know what, that's being used to delegitimize the protests. They're being portrayed as rioters and troublemakers with very little uh, substance explaining, hey, what are they upset about? What are their issues? And so back then we were like, please, please give us more thematic coverage, give us more issues, give us more analysis. And that's a situation, well, be careful what you ask for, because now we get a ton of that and not much sort of objective, kind of factually based reporting. And that puts a greater a burden on the audience. I guess the burden on the audience in the old model was, if you really want to understand what's going on, you're going to have to dig deep yourself to kind of figure out why these people are protesting and what are their issues. Now the burden is put on the audience um, to try to get a balanced diet of news and information um, and, and look a little bit harder to get more straight news reporting. Uh, you know, you may have to go to the BBC to kind of get the old style news reporting to figure out what's going on in some cases. In the 20th century media system, um, there was kind of a core set of facts. We kind of knew what reality was. And, you know, there were distortions of that reality, to be sure. We got parts of reality and ignored other parts of reality. So we got a very incomplete reality. But in the issues that we discussed, at least we kind of agree on what the issues were, uh, what the facts were, what was going on. And then where we differed was we had different uh, um, preferences for policy options, right? Like, you know, you might want to engage in more trickle-down economics where, you know, uh, I might want to engage in more bottom-up stimulus, right, as an answer to jump-starting the economy. But we kind of agreed on what was happening out in the world, and now we can kind of hash it out in terms of what we do about it. In the 21st century media system, we've kind of seen a disappearance of what are agreed-upon facts. Um, completely diametrically uh, different news agendas. If you look at the Fox News agenda and the CNN agenda, they're very divergent in terms of what issues both those news organizations consider important. And even when they do cover the same things, it's a very different version of reality and a very different take on it. Um, and so how can we ever hash things out in the marketplace of ideas anymore if 
we're thinking about different things, if we're talking about a different reality, we can't agree on what has happened. Um, that becomes somewhat troubling. Uh, let's turn now back though to the protests. So um, Professor, you have written a book with Devon Shaw about um, covering Big Brother and surveillance. You also have all this wealth of knowledge on social movements in your research. And I, I think that uh, not, a lot, not enough people right now are talking about uh, surveillance and face facial recognition from your book, if you can speak at all from it. Um, are you seeing anything play out with surveillance and um, the way that the state is using facial recognition technology to utilize against protesters or against the movement? Yeah, I mean, I think there are some underlying law enforcement civil liberties issue when it comes to uh, law enforcement, to, you know, the potential use of surveillance against people. I, you know, again, I'm, I'm not an expert in the law enforcement use of these technologies. I've heard reports of surveillance planes flying over to identify people who are engaged in illegal activities. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm not one to judge whether that was occurring uh, and to what extent that kind of surveillance is occurring. Um, on the other hand, you know, the track record of surveillance makes people kind of paranoid about, and, and rightfully so in some cases, um, about the degree of surveillance in our modern world. Um, you know, again, surveillance comes with a blessing and a curse. Uh, the fact that people have cell phone cameras now, that's a huge innovation uh, in protest events and things like that. Um, Thank goodness, cell phone cameras captured some of these events on camera. Forty years ago, these kind of, you know, it's not like police oppression didn't exist back then. The same kinds of things were happening. It's just it never got caught on camera. By the time the news cameras showed up, everything was done and over, right? Um, and so, you know, Rodney King was probably the first kind of big moment where news cameras did actually capture one of these beatings uh, on camera from helicopters and things like that. But again, that's not an anomalous occurrence. It's just news cameras can't be ever, everywhere and capture these things. So, you know, we heard about these things and saw them once in a blue moon. Turns out they seem to be a lot more common than perhaps we thought. And the reason why we know that is because everybody is walking around now with video cameras. Um, there's not really any sort of privacy in public spaces anymore. Um, so we could bemoan that. By the same token, we now have the ability to record these events. Uh, and these events are sometimes hard to deny. Uh, and that can have tremendous effects. Um, we've seen that, um, and I think um, a large part of it is because we have cell phone cameras that witness uh, George Floyd's uh, murder. Uh, and so it's hard to deny the facts. You see a huge public opinion shift um, towards the protest movement. This never would have happened in the 20th century media system. Never would have happened in the 20th century media system. As citizens, we were outsiders to the protest. We were totally at the mercy 
of the way these protests were framed. And if the media was telling us the protest was a riot and police were responding to restore order and prevent property damage, prevent injuries, we kind of believed it. Now, with cell phone cameras and social media so that people can disseminate these messages for themselves, they're not dependent on the six o'clock news to do it anymore. These messages get out and they get out quickly. And that has allowed the public to see things that they never would have seen 40 years ago. And so in yeah. this case, in particular, it's really sort of changed public reactions to the protest. When you see 26% of the public shift in a short period of time towards more sympathy for uh, of the oppressed, that is incredible and unprecedented. Yeah, are, are we seeing, do you think the rise of the citizen journalists then? Um, with this like ability for someone to disseminate so much information so quickly. Yeah, and you know, that is again, both a blessing and a curse. We now have cameras, we all have the potential to be journalists, to contribute information to the, to the public sphere. Uh, and, and that, and again, in the case of George Floyd, that's been a really good thing and been very important. On the other hand, without the traditional journalistic filters that fact check stories and information and vetted them and you know made sure we got both sides of the story adequately losing that um can open up the system to uh um to sort of more distortion disinformation uh Nobody's checking sources of information on social media, so it makes us vulnerable to people making up things and throwing them into the public discourse. So we've been getting this just, you know, all sorts of different uh, uh, um, conspiracy theories and this happened and this happened. And it's harder and harder every day to check whether that's true or not. And when you have someone that's powerful as the president picking up those things and transmitting them, that has a big effect. A lot of people are going to believe it when someone of authority transfers that. Um, we also have in social media, you know, bots producing news and information that um, can easily be accessed um, by, um, by foreign agents um, and other agitators. So that complicates things, right? On the one hand, People now have a voice and access to the means of communication. Uh, we can all become journalists. That's got some real positive benefits, but also it's a system that can be exploited. And one in which reality and factuality kind of goes out the window and then who knows what to believe. Yeah, you mentioned almost the, the necessary inclusion of both sides to an argument or to a story. Um, what happens though when news organizations or citizen journalists um, kind of dive too far into both sidesism and they create like a, a false equivalence um, by holding yep. up, you know, like two facts, like something factually correct and something factually incorrect? Absolutely. So this is again an artifact of the 20th century media system and the ideology of objectivity. We need to be balanced, present both sides. Um, and you know that was always important, but it was not the entire story of journalism. Some of journalism was being objective and discovering multiple sides to a story, but some of journalism is also about what we call adjudication. 
that is um, being, you're not just, um, think about it like a judge in a courtroom, right? A judge or a jury, here's the evidence. And there are times when the judge or the jury has to kind of rule on that evidence. And sometimes the preponderance of the evidence supports this side. And there's no evidence. If you've made a good faith effort to explore the evidence on both sides, and you find really preponderance of the evidence is all on this side and not on the other, then at some point you have a duty as journalists to say, you know, call it like an umpire, right? Like the judge um, and, and decide, you know, um, and you know, that's what kind of fact checking is all about. Fact checking um, was something you didn't see a lot of in the 20th century media system. With the advent of the 21st century media system, fact checking has become a necessity. Trying to sort of maintain some of the vestige of the journalistic role in determining what's true and what's false in an era where it's very easy for falsehood and information to spread. And back to your point about two sides, that was another critique of 20th century journalism. And it really came into play a lot in terms of protest. Because again, and we examined this in protest after protest, we studied um, anti-pornography protest, we study anarchist protest, we study right to uh, uh, life protest and, and uh, um, pro-choice protest, we studied uh, race protests, all sorts of different protests, we found a lot of the same patterns, right? And a lot of that coverage, that episodic coverage that I referred to earlier was about two sides. The thing was, there was kind of a structural bias when it came to those two sides. The two sides were not the protesters and their chosen adversaries. The chosen adversary might be a government, government policy. The chosen adversary might be an industry or a business. You know, oftentimes it's an institution that they're protesting. But when the stories got told, it was not protesters versus the chosen adversary. It was protesters versus police. Okay, so what did the protesters do? What did the police do? Who was in the right? Who was in the wrong? Sometimes there was attention to police response that got a little carried away in the protest. But generally speaking, it was those were the two sides um, that you uh, um, got in the, in a lot of the protest coverage that we looked at. I think it'd be interesting to turn to the effects of not just the social movements and protests happening across the United States, but uh, the combination of COVID-19, the protests, the election, all coming together in the media this year. <laughs> can you, right, it's, it's pretty crazy. Um, can you speak at all to how pandemic news has kind of fallen off the front page of mainstream media? So this is also something that we saw in the 20th century media system. We called it like spotlighting. That what would happen is the media spotlight would shine a light on some issue. And eventually people get tired of hearing about that issue and something else would kind of pop up and the spotlight would move. And we'd move on and forget about what it was we were looking at last week. Um, and when you had a narrow set of news organizations, ABC, CBS, NBC News, and you know a few newspapers in each local market, spotlighting was a real problem. Because when that spotlight moved, it moved. And it's not like those problems disappeared, okay? You know, the, the civil rights movement did a great job of getting the media coverage uh, and bringing about 
quite a bit of social change. But eventually the spotlight kind of moved on and the, 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 the fight for equal rights uh, stagnated, right? Because all of a sudden it wasn't on the head page, on front pages anymore. And that's kind of a real problem when the spotlight moves um, and, and we move on. So there's been a little of that when, when um, to the COVID, like we were saturated with a lot of COVID coverage. If you watched CNN, for instance, you know, between say March 1st and, you know, fast forward to gosh, even mid-May, it was wall-to-wall COVID coverage. There were a lot of other things happening in the world as well, all the time. Some of those things would have made it onto the CNN agenda were it not for COVID. COVID kind of forced a lot of other things off the agenda. And then uh, 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 George Floyd's uh, uh, incident happened. And all of a sudden, you know, COVID starts to go. The spotlight kind of shifted away somewhat, not entirely but somewhat to a new topic. I can't think of two topics in recent history that have sustained as much media attention in volume and duration as these two events. And the fact that they're occurring simultaneously is somewhat mind blowing, right? And, you know, I can't help watching the protests and feel sympathy for the protesters, but also fear for them in terms of you know, uh, uh, some people that aren't wearing masks, I worry that they're gonna get sick um, and COVID's gonna spread. So you kind of see some of the confluence of those two issues played out right in front of you on the TV set um, when it comes to these protests. Um, the one, um, again, because we have so many more media outlets in the 21st century media system, the one kind of saving grace that keeps COVID alive is that we have lots of news organizations and lots more what we call news holes, space for news and information today than we would have in the old uh, 20th century media system. So there's still plenty of discourse talking about COVID. Um, we have a bigger stage and there's room for two big stories on that stage. That wouldn't have happened in the 20th century media system. You know, yeah. we probably would have moved, moved on and back to COVID by now. Um, but I, I, you know, the protesters have done such a great job of sustaining the protest um, and moving away from some of the more destructive tactics and maybe some of those elements have disappeared and really aren't part of the movement at all. And the ones that are still there are the true movement. Um, but the longer a movement persists, the more positive the coverage is going to get because the media get bored of covering the episodic coverage, burning of police cars, you know, the burning of a police station. Eventually that becomes boring and sooner or later they find themselves, hey, maybe we ought to talk about some of the underlying issues. Um, and it's the same thing with COVID. Eventually we get tired of numbers and statistics and we start examining underlying policies that may have uh, slowed our response and worsened the, and, uh, the impact of COVID-19. Eventually, the media will find time when things are sustained to get beyond the simple episodic uh, 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 
things that uh, uh, attract the coverage of media initially, like violence. Um, where do you see both the election and um, the president's handling of everything fitting into the current media narrative? So one of the things you do as a social science researcher, you know, is you're trying to not just cover everything as idiosyncratic cases. You know, uh, this is a special moment in history with a unique set of facts. We're trying to look at things that are more generalizable to other situations. That said, I can't think of a more idiosyncratic situation right now than COVID. One of the biggest stories in my lifetime. Um, the Black Lives Matter movement looks like it's going to be one of the biggest protests ever in my lifetime. Fundamentally creating, and I will see how much change ultimately occurs, but it's, you know, an earth moving um, situation right now. Um, <clears throat> And uh, at the same time, you have probably the most idiosyncratic president in my memory. I mean, there are many people that love him for his idiosyncrasies. There's many people who despise him because of his idiosyncrasies. Regardless of who you're talking about, I think everybody should agree, he is not your typical president, right? Um, the things he does are unprecedented. Um, the way he acts. Everything about him is novel, again, for better or worse. So you have the confluence of all these things. You know, will we be able to have an election? You know, in terms of being able to vote, we saw that in Wisconsin. Um, you know, and that's couched in a deeper battle over voting rights, right? And, and you have different interests wrestling for policies. Uh, trying to work the system to their advantage. All these things going on. Um, and and <laughs> it's very hard under these idiosyncratic conditions to try to develop generalizable principles that talk about how things work in a situation that's so idiosyncratic. Thank you so much for joining us today. This has been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for sharing your uh, expertise. I, you know, it's fun. I, I really enjoyed talking with you, Adam. For more information regarding the podcast, please visit policy.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. For more information on the university's policies and responses to the pandemic, please visit covid19.wisc.edu. You can find more episodes on all streaming platforms. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate, follow, and subscribe. Thanks for listening to 1050 Bascom COVID-19. Stay safe and take care of each other.